0: Welcome to In Context. This is Michael Easley, and on the program today, we have Natasha Crane, who hails from Los Angeles, the city of angels. How long have you been in L.A.?
1: Oh, goodness, about 25 years. <laughs> have to think about so that. Well, I
0: guess that's home? <laughs>
1: <laughs> for for as long leaving. as I can remember. <laughs> the majority of my adult life.
0: We're in Nashville, and it seems like all your neighbors are moving here. So anyway, Natasha is a speaker, author, blogger, podcaster, and her passion is to help Christians think... More clearly about holding a biblical worldview in an increasingly secular culture. Uh, she is a marketing executive and adjunct marketing professor before she transformed into full time ministry of writing and speaking. She has an MBA in marketing and statistics. You did statistics? My word. UCLA. I took one stat course and barely passed and said, okay, I won't go anymore for the Lord. (laughs) A BA in economics, USC, a certificate in Christian apologetics from Biola. You know that Biola came out of Moody. You know that, right?
1: I actually did not know that.
0: The Moody Bible Institute, and Biola is what? The Bible Institute of Los Angeles. So that was, yeah, that goes back to my... Tours, anyway. She and her husband have married twenty two years and have three children, and we're delighted to have her on the program. She's written three previous books. We're talking about her current one, but "Talking with Your Kids About Jesus" it was a Baker publication twenty twenty. "Talking with Your Kids About God" also Baker twenty seventeen. "Keeping Your Kids on God's Side" a Harvest House text in two thousand sixteen, and then the book we're talking about today is faithfully different, regaining biblical clarity in a secular culture. Let's start off talking about secularism. We hear that term a lot, Natasha. Give me a definition.
1: Well, yeah, people use it in all kinds of different ways, so that is a really important starting point, and people have used it historically in different ways as well. But what I'm talking about in this book is that when you look at the predominant beliefs of our culture today, what you see is that people believe all kinds of different things, but there's something that ties their beliefs together, functionally ties their beliefs together when they do not defer to the authority of God or a particular religion, and that is the authority of the self. And so this is really important to remember because when you look at research that's been done on what people believe today, you see that they believe anything from there's energy found in rocks to reincarnation to there's a higher power that in general I can pray to. The beliefs are all over the map. So sometimes we look at that and we say, well, what are we supposed to do with all of that as Christians? How do we even talk to people today? But there is this underlying tie that is really helpful to understand that it all comes back to the authority. Of the self. And we compare that as Christians who want to have a biblical worldview that our authority, of course, is God. It's external to us and through his revealed word. So that's the key distinction that I'm making in this book is that secularism is ultimately all about the authority of the self rather than the authority of God or a given revelation.
0: Interesting you choose the word authority because my first knee-jerk would be, well, my self doesn't have a whole lot of authority, really.
1: Well, yes, for as a Christian, we look and we say, okay, well, what's our authority for the nature of truth? How do we determine what's true about reality, what's right and wrong and good and bad? And so we look outside of ourselves as Christians with a biblical worldview to say, I'm not going to be the one who determines that ultimately. I might feel differently about things. I might not like something that the Bible teaches, but ultimately I'm going to go with what God says in the Bible because that's objective truth. For someone else, they're going to say, well, it's about what I feel. is about what I think. I'm going with what I believe to be true about reality and morality.
0: And this is something, Natasha, I've been talking about for years has been what I call horizontal versus vertical Christianity, is it's the I, mean my culture, my experience, my feelings, my priorities. I say personal rights are the little gods of our day. And to the exclusion of, you know, man was made in God's image we're image bearers, and we're in this context. It's not our world in some, some respects. It's not our home. But I, it's interesting you choose the word authority. I mean, I'm not, I'm not disagreeing. It's just an interesting way to look at it. So when you see a person push my rights, my identity, my freedom, my choice, you're saying their authority therein is self as opposed to some even not biblical truth but some other truth.
1: Right, exactly. And there are, to be clear, there are other worldviews that have an external authority. It's not just Christians with a biblical worldview. So I always give the example, for example, in Mormonism or in Islam, those would be other authoritative types of worldviews where you're looking to a God outside of yourself and to some kind of revelation of that God as your source for what's true and what's right and wrong. But in our culture today, we see that so many people, they might even believe that there's some kind of God who exists. But if you don't believe that the God who you think exists has actually revealed anything about the nature of reality, you're back to yourself to determine what you believe to be true. So ultimately, it does always come back to you as that authority.
0: You hear it in Hollywood. You hear it in pretty much anywhere in life. I have to be true to myself. You know, be true to yourself. I watched some of the snippets of whatever this last Oscar Fiasco was, and I heard someone reference that, you know, be you have to be yourself, be true to yourself. And I thought, yeah, we've just, you know, I often say God made man in his image, and man's been making God in his image ever since. You know, we we've turned it around. So so in, in Faithfully Different, you're talking about this secular context as I'm surveying your book and looking, I always You you talk about not liking to read introductions (laughs) in your book. I love reading introductions because I want to know where this person, A, if they're organized, B, where they're going. But anyway, you break it into a neat package of four parts. The new normal. Secondly, is faithfully different believing, which we need to unpack. And then faithfully different thinking. And then finally, faithfully different living. And so you're stacking those in a Organization, you have to believe something and then think critically about that before you worry about how that works, application, and practically living it out. If I'm following you.
1: Yeah, that's exactly right. Sometimes Christians get caught up in thinking, well, it's all about our behavior. You know, if I can just be a nice person, if people like me and think that I'm being good, then that's somehow loving. And so I talk about that in the book as well as defining the right behavior. But it goes further back than that. And it starts with having right belief. And by right, I mean beliefs that actually line up with what God says in His Word. So when we have those right beliefs, then that leads to right thinking, godly thinking, and that leads to right behavior.
0: Behavior. Now, you make some pretty interesting points that you don't believe Christians are a majority in America any longer.
1: Yeah, that's exactly right. So the research, and a lot of people have heard about the Pew Forums research in particular, so people say, wait a second, according to all these researchers that track religious trends in America— 65% of Americans are Christian, and according to that research, that's accurate. If you call people up and you say, how do you identify, you know, what's the one label that you would best identify with here, and you say atheist, agnostic, Mormon, Jewish, Christian, whatever, 65% of people will say Christian. But we have to understand what that number represents. That doesn't necessarily tell us anything about what they believe. It only tells you how do they identify themselves, and people could mean all kinds of different things. Things by that. You might have someone who's actually a Christ follower, as you would imagine from what the Bible teaches, but then you could have a lot of people who maybe grew up in a Christian home, and it's the closest thing that they would use as a descriptor for themselves. But it doesn't necessarily mean that they are a faithful follower of Jesus. So if we want to get a better understanding of what's going on in culture with respect to Christianity, we really have to look to research that goes through what people believe. And this has been done by the Cultural Research Center out of Arizona Christian University, led by Dr. George Barna. And what they've done is used dozens of questions to ask people directly what they believe and how do they live their lives. And it's the researchers who then take those responses and categorize them to say, okay, these answers would represent a functional biblical worldview. These people would adhere to the basic core truths as taught in the Bible, and they're seeking to live their lives in these basic ways in connection with that. And so when researchers look at it from this perspective, what they find is that about 6% of Americans have a biblical worldview. So this is a giant gap. We've gone from 65% of people saying, yes, I am a Christian, to 6% actually having a worldview that lines up with what we would think that label means. Big, big
0: difference. We had Barna on not long ago. And as you well know, this cultural research center is doing some extraordinary study But a snippet that I read recently from their 22 inventory was two-thirds, 67% of parents of preteens claim to be Christians, but only 2% possess a biblical worldview. And that's exactly what you're saying. It's such a disconnect. But I also think maybe a little bit of a deference to if I'm asked, if I'm a secular American And I'm asked, are you a Christian? I'm thinking vis-a-vis Muslim or Jewish or, you know, something else. Well, I guess, yeah, the default answer is, is Christian. But, you know, I agree with Barna and you. The clarity is what's missing there. Let's talk about progressive Christianity. This has been something that's, in some ways, I don't think we saw it coming. What's your take on it?
1: Well, I think it's been in the works for a long time, but it hasn't been necessarily as prevalent and obvious to people as it has been lately. So for anyone who's listening who maybe isn't familiar with that term, it can mean lots of things to different people. Um, If if you asked a hundred people, you'd get a hundred different definitions. But ultimately the reason for that is that progressive Christians are those who have walked away from the authority of the Bible as God's word. So in general, and you'll find exceptions, but in general, what ties progressive Christians together Is a belief that the Bible is more like man's best ideas about God over time rather than God's eternal truths as revealed to man. So, this is a very different way of approaching the Bible. And if you approach it in that way that progressives tend to do, where they're now the ones saying, okay, well, this might have some helpful ideas. And, you know, this was a good insight that this person had. And yes, this teaching of Jesus was good. But this over here, not so much. What ends up happening is that you're becoming just as secular as the culture around you, because now you're putting yourself in the place of authority. It comes right back to the authority of the self for progressive Christians, because now they're the ones in charge or putting themselves in charge of picking and choosing what they believe to be true from the Bible. So that, of course, is going to lead to progressive Christians having very different ideas about Christianity, because your beliefs will completely depend on what you personally pick and choose out of the Bible to be true.
0: You obviously done your homework. And when I read statistics in your bio, I, I did laugh because that's certainly a left brain function in my worldview. <laughs> <laughs> People that can think in mu curves and ANOVA curves just, you know, bedazzle me. But that said, when you look at our culture, and you just gave a good definition of progressive Christianity, percentage wise, this is a hypothetical guesstimate. Where is the church in all this? And, and as a pastor, most of my ministry life, I really take deference with the pastor being blamed for everything. At the same time, the local church has lost its legs and its moorings, and it's become accommodating to the culture more and more and more. Forget denominational mainline churches. Let's talk about this broad and now unsavory term, evangelical for a moment. That tent used to be reformed, dispensational, You know, maybe some on premill, pre post debates, maybe a little bit probably not Armenian, but generally speaking, there was a a soteriology that was reformed. Eschatology was a little different, but the Holy Spirit's indwelling of the believer, the conviction of the Spirit, the growth, things we agreed on. Now, what you just said about progressive Christianity and secularism, how many churches are holding the line to the aforementioned what we might call historical, orthodox, or evangelical teachings?
1: That, that's difficult to quantify. I'm not sure that I've seen anyone try to quantify that, but I can say that according to the same Barna research that about within the evangelical church, about 21% of people have a biblical worldview. So I think that tells you something, not necessarily about how do we count up churches and say a certain percent of churches are holding the line versus going progressive, but if you look at the people within the church, you can quantify an approximate percentage there about how many have a biblical worldview, which is shocking in and of itself.
0: And it goes back to Barna's earliest book, Frog in the Kettle, you know, because the notion that these things are norm, I was writing something earlier today on when I was younger sanctity of life and marriage were the two sacrosanct issues that Christians in the country were concerned of. Well, Roe v. Wade dismantled sanctity of life. Obergefell dismantled the sanctity of marriage. We had a small window where one president could have pushed Doma through, and had he signed the Defense of Marriage Act, maybe things would be a bit different. That said, the churches stood by and watched it with little action, and I'm a, I'm not a political activist, I'm just saying policy matters, and the church needs to be clear on what we're teaching. But in my worldview, in the places we've lived, I can count on one, maybe two hands, the churches that are staying the course of opening the Bible and teaching the text, as opposed, let's bring in BLM folks and talk, let's bring in CRT and talk, let's bring in progressives and talk, let's bring in LBGTQA and talk about how the church has failed. Those may be great seminars, they may be great exercises, but in my biblical worldview, that's not what the church is about. Am I wrong? Am I off base here?
1: No, I, I agree completely. And I think that you know, for a lot of Christians who do seek to have a biblical worldview— the danger isn't so much in the churches who are just explicitly you know, putting out the rainbow flags, going all into critical social theory, right. those kinds of things, because we can look at that and say, okay, well, this is different than what I believe to be the historic Christian faith. The danger, I think, for so many Christians today is that there are a lot of churches where they're kind of in this middle ground, and they're kind of just handling things in a fuzzy way so that you're starting to hear preaching that— doesn't necessarily line up completely with what the Bible teaches, but it's not so obvious. It's not so in your face. And these are the stories that I hear from so many people where they're saying, you know, I, I'm just trying to hear these things that are preached and it doesn't sound quite right. And that's the challenge because there are a lot of people sitting in churches who don't necessarily know that they're in a church that's leaning progressive, and they just trust that what they're getting is what the Bible teaches. That's why it's so important for Christians, by the way, to read their Bibles, <laughs> to make sure that you actually know what the Bible teaches, because otherwise you're going to be vulnerable <laughs> to get these kinds of errant teachings or even leaning in that way.
0: Well, and so many churches are comprised of relational networks, and, you know, I officiated a wedding not long ago in another state, and one side of the bridegroom They were all lived in the same area for 20 some years and went to the same churches. And I get it. You know, if you grow up in a church and your kids go to Sunday school or maybe there's a league or a local school or a Christian school, I'm not naive in that regard. But I also am very protective of the sheep because sheep are sheep. And even growing and maturing sheep, sometimes they're just back to barn, a frog in a kettle. And so you and I are talking about progressive Christianity, about secularism, and the next thing I want to talk to you about is, is social justice. Because, again, in my day, sanctity of life and marriage, where the two die on our sword, today, social justice, it seems so appealing. It seems so right. Uh, friends, teachers of mine from my graduate seminary, who are basically in pro all kinds of things that are, not to be indelicate, they're not biblical, but they're swayed by the emotion of the day, and social justice would be just one of those. Now, you talk about biblical justice, so give us a little differentiation of what's social justice and biblical justice, Natasha.
1: Yeah, it's a really complex subject, as you well know, and so a lot of times when people, when Christians are getting sucked into these ideas, they're thinking it's just about being compassionate. And there's a lot of pressure today, and it sounds kind of funny at first, but there's a lot of pressure to be compassionate in the way that the world would define compassionate. And so this is a really important thing, I think, for Christians to understand, that just because the world says something's compassionate doesn't necessarily mean it It is. That has to be defined by God. God defines what is harmful or beneficial for someone based on His objective standards. So that's a starting point. So Christians should immediately ask, okay, is this actually something good or bad for people? So the way that I lay it out in my chapter where I'm talking about this is really to bring it down to three questions. And I'm trying to give a framework for thinking about this because it is so much to wade into and it's only one chapter in the book. But I give the three questions as these. Number one, why are things the way they are? And so, in other words, how are we diagnosing the problems that we see in the world? Because we would all, no matter what our worldview is, we all say, yes, there are things broken in the world. There are people who are hurting. There are people who have been marginalized. There are people who have been oppressed throughout history. Yes, 100%. But the key question to start with is, well, why is that? Why are things the way they are? And from a Christian perspective, we would look at that and we would say, well, sin. (laughs) Sin is a huge reason for that because people make Poor choices. We make morally wrong choices and we hurt other people. And we define justice based on God's objective standards. But for critical theory advocates, and critical theory basically is this whole idea of putting people into oppressor and oppressed groups. And it's the idea that everyone who is oppressed is oppressed because of the power in place in the social structures of today. So the key answer is the problem of the world is social structures versus simply sin. And so when we look at those and we compare those answers, we start to see, okay, these are very different ideas. When you're defining justice based on different standards, you're going to get very different answers. Then the second question is, well, how should things ultimately be? big important question to ask for Christians we know there's not going to be a utopia on this earth ever because of the reality of sin so we're never going to find perfection that doesn't mean we shouldn't fight for what's right and that we shouldn't fight for the marginalized and the oppressed who are truly oppressed according to god's standards but we know we're not going to find perfection how should things ultimately be for people who adhere to secular social justice is that we're working toward almost this utopia that we want to completely flip upside down the nature of society to get rid of these people who are, according to them, in these powerful positions who are pressing people, it's sort of a move toward a utopian system that we can never achieve. So when you look, and this is a very simplified example, obviously, but when you look at those two questions alone, why are things the way they are? How should things ultimately be? The answer to the third question becomes obvious. It's, well, how do we best get from point A to point B? That answer is going to be vastly different for a Christian then someone who believes that social structures are very problematic, we need to overturn everything. That requires a revolution in society. That requires breaking down everything as we've known it. That requires getting rid of all the norms that we've always had. This is a completely different mentality than what we would have as Christians mm-hmm. based on a biblical worldview.
0: You know, I'm hearing you and the academic love to read and learn part goes, yes, 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 yes. And then I immediately jump forward into Natasha and I go, You know, the average homemaker, the average young married couple with, you know, two or three or four kids, the person trying to pay their mortgage and get out of debt, their sphere of influence is such a knife edge because on the one hand, they're trying to be good neighbors and loving Christian people. On the other, they're being swallowed up by a culture that I don't shy away from anymore saying it's evil. It's not just wrong. It's evil. And so this cauldron in which we're in, I'm really concerned. I keep my marriage together and my kids, you know, loving each other, much less loving church or youth group or whatever their, their struggle. So our sphere of influence goes from an academic discussion that I would agree. And we could talk about for hours, help out the, you know, the average person who's just trying to make it work, Natasha. And you're throwing some pretty heavy stuff out there when you're talking about reform or (laughs) revolution. And I agree but what's little old me supposed to do?
1: Well, I think it starts with understanding the importance of the subject, because if you don't think that it's important, not you, but the person that we're talking about, if you don't think that this is, yes, if you, if you don't think that this is important, then you're not going to want to do anything. And the right. reason that it is important is really, there is twofold. And this is what I talk about in the book. The number one is for your own relationship with the Lord. And number two is for your calling to be salt and light and culture and your understanding, and I'm not saying anyone has to be a super academic person who understands the intricate history of critical theory in order to be able to do any of this, but to understand the basic contours of the discussion. Even, you know, one chapter's worth of information about, okay, this is different, and I don't want to get swept up into it. This is what we need to know. And I say it is important for our own relationship with the Lord, because if we don't have the discernment, really, to look and see what is wrong with some of these movements, and how they're leading people astray, and how they're actually proactively opposed to God himself, if we don't have that and we start buying into some of these ideas, well, that affects our own belief system. That affects how we see reality. It affects our relationship with God and with others. And so we do need to understand the basics. Does it take some time and energy? 100%. But if you just found out that you had cancer, for example— you would stop everything. You would pour yourself into understanding the problem that you have because you think it's really important. Well, we should treat our own faith the same way, both, again, for our relationship with the Lord and for our ability to help others see clearly. So it is important, especially when it's so dominant in our culture today. We see it everywhere coming through the public school system. So it's about the next generation. We see it in media. I mean, we've seen it in the headlines constantly, right? All these ideas Mm -hmm. trickle through. So Mm -hmm. it's critical for us to understand the basic contours of the discussion, even if we're never going to be some kind of expert in the subject matter.
0: Interestingly, you talk in the book about cancel culture and I have a podcast, you have a podcast, I have a public presence, so to speak, whatever that means. And so I do parse my words, but I'm not shy. Again, one of the advantages of age is I don't really care if you like me anymore. (laughs) I'm not trying to build something. I'm trying to, you know, anchor the next generation, but for younger people, it's more risky You know, and so obviously you're addressing this. We're afraid of being canceled. I mean, the number of, I'm sure you have acquaintances who have been uh, blocked, turned off on social media, ghosted, whatever term you want to use, and you talk about this in your book.
1: Yeah, I think sometimes Christians think, well, you know, cancel culture, that's about celebrities. I'm not a celebrity, so I'm not going to have to worry about this. But the reality is, is that the same ideas in culture that lead to the celebrities being canceled for one thing or another are the ones that affect the people you're around every day, the people that you teach with at your school, the people that you go to work with in your office. It it surrounds you everywhere. And so we have to address it. This is one of those things where you can't choose to address it or not address it. It's just the nature of our culture now. So we're going to have to decide, how are we going to handle this? And I hear from people all the time, what they're having to go through at work now, somebody just this week told me that they're in the closet as a Christian teacher at their local high school. And I just, I think it was the first time I'd heard someone use that particular term. And I thought, wow, you have to be in the closet as a Christian in certain environments. So this isn't going away. We have to make a decision. What are we going to do? Are we going to just sit back and be silent knowing that People are going to see us in a certain way, or are we going to be strategic in how we step up? And I think it is so important that we do continue to speak truth and not be silenced by culture. We have to understand Jesus told us that the world was going to hate us. So this is nothing shocking. (laughs) We have to remember this. This is nothing shocking. Maybe what's more shocking is that it hasn't been like this in America in previous decades, that Mm -hmm. people didn't necessarily hate you so much. Well, now they're doing exactly what Jesus said, so we shouldn't be shocked by it. It doesn't make it easy, but we're not looking for what's easy. We're looking to do what's right and what God calls us to. So I think that's the important. Important takeaway for Christians to understand that it is going to get harder. People are not having dispassionate conversations about whose worldview is actually right. Let's sit down and take out our apologetics and look back and forth about this. What they're saying is your worldview is wrong. And not only is it wrong, but it's harmful. And that is a tough hill to climb.
0: If I can interrupt, you made a comment about, you know, paraphrase, not sitting around having a dialogue about this. Dialogue is dead debate is dead. The notion of free speech is almost a nomenclature. The idea that we can have a civil discourse about A versus B is gone. And the louder voices, I'm not, there was a line in one of my favorite movies called Enemy of the State, which is probably close to 20 years old now with Will Smith and Gene Hackman. Will Smith's character says to Gene Hackman, so you're one of those conspiracy theory guys, huh? And Hackman goes, no, I'm more of a conspirator. (laughs) 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 And, And we're in a culture where there is no ability to talk about these things. You're vilified, canceled, if you want to use that term, immediately if you say, you know, I happen to believe in Christ, and I happen to follow the scriptures. And I know there's some difficult passages that are hard for this culture. All of a sudden, I'm hateful. I'm intolerant. You know, whatever the terms of the day are going to fall down on me, in our little ministry here, we've had the discussion about what I talk about on the podcast, being there'll be a day they'll shut it down. I go, well, they'll shut it down. I'm not going to shy away from saying LGBTQAI is a problem. This is not just identity, this is sin, just like any other morality sin. And they say, well, you're, you're going to be censored. Well, that may happen, but until that happens, we have to say it. We interviewed Monique Deson a while back and I made the comment, you know, an old white guy like me can't really talk about race. And she said, You better <laughs> She kinda of upbraided me. I'm well, point taken, you know, but it's it's such a delicate world in which we live. I love your, you know, kind of summary. It's my personal relationship, but we're also salt and light. We're not too good on the salt and light, Natasha.
1: Yeah, it's hard. (laughs) A lot of times we don't try, so that's on us. But then a lot of times, once we actually do try, then people hate us for it, and so then we get quiet. So it is a very difficult situation. But I think what's really important for people to understand is that you can't determine whether you've been, quote unquote, successful as salt and light by someone else's response to it. And I think that's where we get into a lot of trouble. Because if we're trying to speak truth and somebody else is hating us for us or has cut us off and they're mad at us, and they think you're hateful, they start to label you, you think, gosh, I did something wrong. I'm not being salt and light right now. I'm not doing this thing very well, so I better just not do it. But we have to remember that just because someone feels that way in receiving the truth doesn't mean that we shouldn't speak the truth in the first place or that we necessarily did it wrong. We can do it wrong. We can speak truth in really terrible ways, 100%. We should always be reflecting on that. If someone's not receiving it well, is it on me? But in general, we have to remember that in this kind of culture, you are not responsible for how someone receives it, but you are called to continue to deliver truth in a kind and gracious way, according to God's definitions of what is kind and gracious.
0: Yeah, it's it's the old saw: I'm not responsible for your response to me, but I am responsible for the way I respond to you. And it's a delicate balance, and I think there's so many tripwires today. You categorize it: you're the oppressor or the oppressed. <laughs> there's no, there's no middle ground here. Oh well, golly! Given that, you know, I guess I'll choose to be oppressed rather than be the oppressor, right? <laughs>
1: Yeah. And you know, it's interesting because I was just thinking about your comment from when you were talking to Monique and saying, you know, you're a white guy, so you can't say anything. A lot of people would recognize, they would feel that that's what culture is telling us today. But you were saying, you know, what about the average person who's like, I can't learn all this? Well, that whole concept of you're a white guy, so you can't speak, that comes directly out of critical theory. So again, if you just understand the very basics of those claims, you don't have to be some kind of academic expert. You just need to understand this whole idea that if if you're in an, a so called oppressor group, which would be a white male, you're right there, right in it, then From you the top don't have of the pile, yeah. yeah, you're on the top of the pile. You don't have the same right to speak as someone who falls into an oppressed group on those subjects. But As Christians, we believe in objective truth, that it doesn't matter who's speaking it, that there is an objective truth that can be claimed and that can be shared. So I just think that's such a good example of what we were talking about earlier. We might know that culture doesn't like you to speak because you're a white male, but why is that? And that's what critical theory explains.
0: In your faithfully different thinking, you you have a section on reinvigorating the spirit of discernment. Help me out there.
1: So I go through in that chapter and talk about a bunch of different false Jesuses that are running around today. So discernment runs throughout the book in all kinds of different ways. But in that particular chapter, I'm focusing on the fact that so many Christians are taking their cues on who Jesus is from the culture around us, and culture— culture is interested in Jesus. I mean, to some degree. They don't actually want to believe what he claimed to to be for himself, but they think he's an interesting person as an activist, for example. They think that Jesus was a socialist. So I have socialist Mm -hmm. Jesus in there, and there's activist Jesus. There's red-letter Jesus, meaning that the only thing that matters is the words that Jesus spoke and nothing else in the Bible. I have theology-light Jesus. This is the one that I probably encounter the most myself online in conversations and groups with people, because so many progressive Christians, they think that Jesus' didn't really care about theology. It was just all about how you treat one another, as long as it's that that horizontal thing, right? It's just how do you treat people and be loving in whatever way that you want to define that. Which of course, if that were true, that would be a theology too. (laughs) So it's not about theology, light or not. It's okay, Jesus taught something, but what exactly did he teach? And it certainly wasn't just that behavior alone matters. So all these different Jesuses that culture puts forth, if we start to buy into those, then once again, that affects our relationship with the Lord because now we're in a relationship with someone that we have a complete misunderstanding of. And another very common one of example of those is the judge not Jesus this one gets dragged out all the time. It's, you know, well, I don't know about all these things. That's above my pay grade. I'm not going to judge. (laughs) I'm not judging. But Jesus tells us to judge with right judgment. You know, the whole passage in Matthew 7, 1 about, you know, judge not or you too will be judged. That's just the preface to a whole passage on not judging hypocritically. You know, he says, take the log out of your eye so you can see clearly to help your neighbor and take the speck out of theirs. He doesn't say take it out and then Walk away, you know, go forward, help your neighbor. So the judge, not Jesus, he gets trotted out all the time, but that's just not an actual Jesus. We want to make sure we're in relationship with and we love the actual Jesus, not culture's fabrication of him.
0: Well, even more specifically in Matthew 18, where he discusses about if someone sins, that you're to go to them. And, you know, then, of course, Pauline theology picks this up in Galatians chapter six. We call this, we knit this together and call it church discipline, which I've always argued it should be called church restoration, but be that as it may, the idea is if my brother or sister is living a certain way, I have an obligation to lovingly, kindly go to him or her. I often use the silly illustration, a stop sign is a moral judgment. You know, you may not like it, but if you don't come to a complete stop, you might endanger yourself or others. You know, a speed limit is a moral judgment. You better keep it to this level for your safety. But anyway, we're not logical on these things, we're emotional on these things. When someone reads the title of your book, Natasha, Faithfully Different, and candidly, I'd read that several times going, okay, what's she getting at here? I am to be unique in a crazy culture. Certainly, maybe it's an overstatement, but a godless culture. And again, I haven't said this until the last few years, an evil culture. I am to live faithfully in that. So you're telling me, Michael, you got to be different.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think that it's a resetting of people's expectations, and that shouldn't be new, by the way, because the Bible calls us to this. Right? This is not new news. <laughs> There's no new news here. Yes, we are to be different. Oh, and why are we
0: talking about this? If it's not a new book, why? <laughs>
1: <laughs> but we need to be reminded of it. it it's sort Amen. of an yeah, it, it's, <laughs> it's an expectation reset <laughs> that it does require us to be very different. And when I, what I talk about just at the very beginning of the book is that in so many cases, we are living as an extension of the secular world rather than as a distinct light to it. So that is really the heart of the book is helping Christians to clarify what does it mean to have a biblical worldview, to truly live your life according to the Bible and to have beliefs that line up with what the Bible teaches and to think accordingly versus secularism, which is the complete working out of the authority of the self. That That's going to leave you, if you're actually doing that, in a very different position than the world around you. We want to be faithful in doing that, but it does mean we're going to be very, very different.
0: When you think about your own peer, couples your age, are they getting this?
1: Hmm. That just, uh, it's so, it so depends. There are some, for sure, who do, and then there are a lot who don't. and i think uh, to a large degree going back to what we were talking about earlier i think that it depends on the church they're in it so much depends on the church they're in because people have the assumption for better or worse that the pastor of the church that they're in is going to teach them truth and that that pastor is going to be delivering what's in the bible and that's that's the end right there's a lot of people there're a lot of people who don't press further into that and I think that that is ultimately a really big problem because they're just depending on someone else to tell them what the Bible says rather than going back and really being in the Word themselves. So I would say that most of the parents that I know in terms of like my season of life with kids that are somewhere in this like middle school age range or a little above or below, they're more focused on having nice kids, for one thing. So it's more about values rather than, okay, this is what we need to believe as Christians, and here's what flows from that. So I'd say that is a big problem, the values portion of it. But the other end of that is parents who do understand what's entailed in a biblical worldview, but then they're just picking off individual cultural issues with their kids. So it's as if the only question that parents want to ask today is, well, how do I talk to my kids about all of this LGBTQ stuff? How do I talk to them about this? transgender issue. But then if you actually ask them, okay, well, as a starting point for this conversation, where are your kids spiritually right now? What do they believe about the nature of the Bible? Do they believe it's God's word? Have they walked away from the Bible? Or are they more of a deist at this point, an atheist? So many parents will answer that question and say, you know, I'm not sure right now. Yeah, if yeah. you're not sure where your kids are on that, how are you going to talk to them about these issues? Because they're the tip of a worldview iceberg. It's not going to help if you just keep pointing back to the Bible. They know what the Bible says if you've already told them that, but they probably don't believe the Bible is actually God's Word. So they're just thinking you're mean or arrogant or whatever they want to attribute to somebody who does <laughs> believe it's God's Word. So this is, I think this is the bigger problem, is that parents who do care about the biblical worldview aren't spending enough time understanding the worldview that underlies all the cultural issues today. So, the spectrum of different issues there, but those are some
0: thoughts. I often, often, you know, I, I call myself people say, How are you? Like, I'm ornery as ever. And I mean that <laughs> tug in cheek, but I also mean it, you know, truthfully, because I am ornery about what's happened and I'm ornery with what's happened in families. Uh, Bruce Wilkinson, many, many years ago, had this illustration of the three chairs and he talked about the first generation Christian second generation and third generation, and he used an anecdote to say, if you talk to a first-generation Christian, tell me about your spiritual life. He or she might say, you know, this morning I was reading Isaiah 7, and I was reminded again about da, da, da. a second-generation Christian. Tell me about your Christianity and your growth in Christ. Well, we're trying to go to the church. We're busy, but we got soccer, and we're trying to get the kids in programs. Da, da, da. Third-generation Christian, tell me about your faith. Well, you know, that's my parents' faith, and I'm trying to explore. And his I mean, it's much more elaborate and well-told, but the point being, and this really goes back to your prior books, talking with your kids about Jesus, talking with your kids about God, and keeping your kids on God's side, because the culture is not going to help in this regard. I've been so arrogant to say the Christian school may not even help in this regard, that the parents' front line and the people that you— walk with other couples who are like-minded to say, my broken record, Natasha, is God's Word, God's Spirit, God's people. You need all three of those to grow. If you're in God's Word, controlled by God's Spirit, and walking down the same path with similar thinking people, you're going to get in trouble. You know, the least case, you're going to be apathetic. The worst case, you're going to walk away. And so we do look at our kids, and we wring our hands, and we put them in programs and parachurch, all great, all good. But somehow they got to own it, right?
1: Absolutely. And they're constantly getting pressures on all ends. And it's hard. It Just as it's hard for us as adults to see what's going on, they're in the battle. <laughs> they are in the battlefield of it. And I've had my kids for several years in a Christian school. And I homeschool two of them now, and one is still at a Christian school. But I totally appreciate what, what you're saying because I found that to be true. I think that Christian schools can be very helpful to come alongside parents yes. for sure. I think that, you know, almost all the time you would probably find a better opportunity there than at public schools, but it's not always what parents think that it is. You know, a lot of times it's just kind of a a nominal Christian school where you're going to pray a couple of times at school. You're going to have a chapel once a week and maybe a Bible class that may or may not be taught by a teacher that believes the Bible is God's Word. It just depends on the school completely. So just like you can't always know what it means when someone says they're a Christian, you cannot know what it means when a school says it's Christian. So you have to do your homework. But even so, even if you find the best Christian school in the world, you as the parent are the primary. Discipler of your children. It is to you. It's great when the church comes alongside in terms of the youth program and, and things like that. And it's great if you can do a Christian school and if it's a robust school, all the better. But it still comes back to you to train your kids to help them understand and prepare for today.
0: Which, on the one side, is terrifying. <laughs> and on the other side, it's empowering because, yes. you know, and again, I'm just talking about more, more about me than I should. But in our church here at Stonebridge, where I serve, I tell young parents, I've never said this in 40 years of being a pastor. You need to homeschool your kids or have them in a tutorial, or you're crazy. And I, I just say it just that way. I go, listen, I know there's some really good Christian schools in our area. There's a great classical school, actually, that probably is the best, but they don't come cheap, and not everyone can afford, and not every child can navigate. That's a, It's a very rigorous, your word, rigorous culture in those classic education schools. That being said— you know what you're doing with your homeschool kids it's i never thought i'd live to see the day where i am saying you better homeschool or you have a tutorial or you're really running even a, a greater risk cuz the indoctrination and in the testing objectives are just not a they're not teaching critical thinking and b there's nothing remotely christian about what they're doing half the time
1: yeah Absolutely. It's one of the most shocking things, I think, about my experience with, with education and, and what happens at schools. <laughs> the, even the, the curricula, you know, when I was a younger parent, my kids were just starting out. I didn't even think to ask about the curricula and what's being taught. I just thought, well, they go to school. It, you just don't think about these things if you're not in education, right? And then the more you start learning about the nature of the curricula and then how certain ideas work their way into history, for example, the rewriting of history that we're seeing today. I live in California, and in California, there's a whole review vision to the history curricula. So there's just, there's so much that parents aren't aware of.
0: It's truly terrifying. Okay, on that depressing note. <laughs> <laughs> and, 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 and the time remaining, Natasha, uh, encourage our folks, uh, encourage them. And I'm going to go back to what you said earlier. This is about your personal walk, relationship, maturity with Christ. And secondarily, it's about being salt and light in the culture.
1: Yeah, I, I think that, you know, there's no need to put a happy face on and say, you know, oh, let's all just be happy about what's going on because we have Jesus. Well, okay, there, we have to kind of be nuanced in how we look at this. I think that it's actually healthy spiritually if you're grieving what you see in culture. If you don't grieve the kind of pain and the kind of darkness that we see going on around us, then I don't think that you're in tune with what God wants for us as humans. And so I think that that's a healthy starting point of saying, yes, it's okay to grieve what we see. However, We don't want to just stay in that spot forever and feel sad and depressed and discouraged. We want to see this as an opportunity. And I think when we reframe how we see this, that we say, "Yes, Jesus told us it was going to be like this, but He also, Mm -hmm. in knowing that, told us that we were to go be salt and light. That we should be making disciples of all nations. He wouldn't give us commands that we can't fulfill." (laughs) So I think that understanding this as an opportunity and framing it that way in our in our minds is so helpful because then we know that. That we can make a difference in the culture even when it seems difficult and we can live up to our calling and that obedience in and of itself should bring us joy.
0: Natasha Crane author her newest book is Faithfully Different. You can pick it up. I'm going to suggest something that for some of you this might be a, you know especially you younger parents who've got kids still in high school college I would even say probably elementary and junior higher the more difficult years right now just because it's foundational for what they're going to get if they don't learn critical thinking. Grab three or four of your couple friends, buy Natasha's book, get together once a week or for a Saturday brunch at somebody's house for two hours, read a couple of chapters, and talk about these things. We are frogs in the kettle. And before we know it, the culture is swallowing us up. So, Natasha, thanks for your work. Again, you can find the information in the show notes about her prior books, as well as the book we've been talking about today, Faithfully Different. Blessings on how God continues to use you, Natasha.
1: Thank you so much. It's been great talking with you. Did you know that In Context is fully funded by our listeners like you? If you are a regular listener, would you consider giving a one-time or perhaps monthly donation? You can give at michaelincontext.com. In Context is
0: produced by Hannah Seymour, mixed and mastered by Sonamorphic, and music composed by Tycho and Blair Masters.